Good to see you here. Today and the next two weeks at EU Public Meetings, we're going to look at a part of the Bible in Genesis, chapters 4 to 11. It follows on from the series we started last semester. Before we start, let's pray. Father, please speak with us today as we open your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it, help me to explain it clearly, and help us to put it into practice in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a number of big questions in life, and over the next few weeks, this week, next week, and the week after, we're going to be looking at some of those big questions. The first big question I want to suggest to you is what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? How would you answer that question? Unless you've been isolated from any contact with people or society uh, for most of your life, and that's not anyone here because you're here, uh, you, you will observe that all is not well with the world. On Monday in Mumbai, India, 46 people were killed by car bombs a deliberate act of violence. On the weekend, a tree fell on a car in St Ives, killing the passenger in the windstorm. Uh, The rate of divorce and family breakdown in our society means that it's unlikely anyone here in this room is untouched by either personally or through a close friend. Just the grief, the pain and the personal upheaval that comes from that kind of broken relationship. What's wrong with the world? Don't get me wrong, there's lots of great stuff as well. There's good stuff to enjoy. I had a barbecue meat lovers pizza on the weekend that was superb. <laughs> I uh, spent the weekend in an old house on the shores of Fort Hacking down south. Uh, it's a lovely uh, expanse of water. Uh, I remember particularly Sunday morning having a hot breakfast, looking out over the water through the bay windows with good company. There's a great time. I love watching my kids grow up and interacting with them. There's lots of things in life that actually make it a pleasure as well, but there really is something wrong with the world. Nothing shouts it more loudly than death. In the last couple of years, I've been to three funerals. Uh, the first was my 89-year-old great aunt. The second was a 27-year-old friend. The third was an eight-month-old daughter of another friend. Death can happen at any time in your life. It goes and every time it goes against the grain. Every time it, it just feels wrong. But it happens to everybody. What is wrong with the world? And that question gives rise to a second question, what can be done about it? Education, get in touch with the unifying principle of the universe, get control of your environment and protect yourself at all costs, revolution maybe. Or maybe, actually there's nothing you can do about it, so just enjoy the moment. What can be done about it is another big question. Often Christians are are called on to defend their faith in a good and all-powerful personal God 
Because of the reality that there is something wrong with the world, the question is, what is God doing about it? It's focused. What is God doing about it? In the next couple of weeks we'll be looking at a section of the Bible that has something to say about those questions. doesn't have everything there is to say, a complete answer, but there's the beginnings of an answer in these chapters, right back at the beginning of the Bible. We're studying Genesis 4 to 11, as I said. We looked at chapters 1 to 3 last semester. If you weren't here, don't worry. Um, This series is self-contained and I'll refer back to those uh, passages and stories we go along, enough for you to be able to pick it up. But today we're going to look at the chapters 4 and 5 of Genesis. If you've got a Bible there, it will be handy to at least be able to look on or make sure people around you can see it. Because we're looking at reasonably big slabs over the next few weeks. Um, and so we'll dive into particular passages as they arise. There's an outline of what I have to say on your handout that would also be handy to follow what's going on. But these two chapters we're looking at, like four or five, obviously can uh, occur in a wider unit, chapters four to eleven, uh, a unit of Genesis. And it's worth just having say a few things about that bigger unit before we start, so we can put these chapters in context. Firstly, chapters four to eleven is part of uh, the book called Genesis, which was written to teach and encourage the people of Israel, the people who the one and true God had chosen to be His special people. And as the name suggests, it's about beginnings, this book. Beginnings of the whole earth and the beginnings of God's people who are placed in that, in that world. The story so far, just to catch up where we're up to, has been uh, of the beginnings of the earth. So chapter 1 tells us how God made the whole earth and all that's in it and he made it to be a place of abundance teeming with life, tremendously positive view of the creation. And the pinnacle of his creative work is humans, Adam and Eve. They're created to rule the world under God's authority. They're to look after the world, cultivate it. They're placed in a lush, abundant garden, a beautiful place, and particularly they're to look after that place. And that garden is a place of peace. There's peace between humans and their creation, There's peace between human and human. There's peace between humans and God. It's a marvellous place. And then in in chapter 3, just before our section today, the unthinkable happens in this story. The humans assert their independence from God. They distrust something he's told them and they disobey a direct command. It's a stupid, tragic act that happens in chapter 3 of Genesis and it's, but it's got enormous consequences. God pronounces judgement on them in the form of curses. Those curses have profound effects on their experience of God's world. Things they've been previously encouraged to do now become really difficult, for example. So, before God had encouraged them to be fruitful and multiply. Now, for the woman to have kids is really painful. Before, the man and the woman had been joined together in a relationship, a a lovely relationship called a one-flesh relationship. Now there will be rivalry between them. Before, God had put man in the garden to cultivate it. Now that that ground is going to be resistant to his attempts to cultivate and grow food. 
In fact, it requires hard, sweaty work that in the end will lead to death and the wearing out of the body. To carry all off, they're banished from the garden, actually locked out. Their source of life and peace and fruitfulness and worst of all, their close relationship with God has been changed forever, cut off. It's a depressing, dumb, devastating departure from paradise. That story, chapter 3. And I guess the question left and, and uh, hanging on the readers of this as we come to chapter 4 is what's, what's going to happen next? Uh, the TV miniseries announcer will come in over the credits after chapter 3 and wet our appetite for the next week. Will they survive? What, how widely will these consequences apply? What about their kids, if they have any? Will the Lord remain involved with them? There's some questions hanging in the air as we come to chapter 4. And those are the kinds of questions that are picked up. Now, you, you may or may not be familiar with these chapters, but it's got, they've got some well-known stories in chapters 4 to 11. Cain and Abel. Does that ring a bell for you? Uh, they've given rise to a number of books. There's a famous John Steinbeck novel called East of Eden. But if you like a racier style, there's also a Geoffrey Archer book, which is subtly called Cain and Abel, uh, on the same, uh, based on the same themes. There's a story of Noah and his ark, which uh, probably is familiar to many of you. Uh, great material for Sunday school lessons and songs. Uh, the, the, the classic, the age-old classic, God said to Noah, there's going to be a bloody wuddy. Uh, that comes to mind. Uh, great material for kids' stuff. Uh, there's a lesser known account of the Tower of Babel at the end, which you may have heard of vaguely. That's the sort of stuff that's in here. But as you flick through, if you flick through it, the thing that probably stands out, uh, or is strangest to us, is the genealogies. 93 of the 210 verses or so are genealogies, nearly half. Family trees, lists of names. Name after name after name. Now I could do some of the most boring talks EU's ever heard on these chapters because half of them are lists of names. Uh, we could go into the names and what they mean, and, but we won't do that. But as it turns out, those genealogies are really important for understanding Genesis 4 to 11, I think. They hold the section together structurally. They have a part to play in this narrative. In a way, these five chapters are a, a genealogy interrupted by narrative. We read it the other way because we're unfamiliar with genealogies. In a way, it's a genealogy with narrative that picks up on particular characters in the genealogy and fills it out with, a, with uh, the story and the accounts of their life. It starts with the genealogy of the immediate descendants of Adam and Eve. And then it traces them all the way through, it traces the family tree right through to the central character of the next section of Genesis, starting in chapter 12, which is Abraham. In your outlines you can see there's a summary of one way of conceiving of the structure of Genesis 4 to 11. See, it starts with descendants of Adam by Cain and there's a, there's a narrative about Cain and Abel. Then there's a substantial um, genealogy which follows the descendants of Adam by Seth and ends up with Noah. Then there's a, there's a big narrative about the flood. That's a, a big part of these chapters. We'll look at that next week. 
Then there's another small genealogy about the descendants of Noah's sons and another narrative about the Tower of Babel. And then there's again the substantial genealogies continue. So we ended up with Noah and his sons from the first one. We pick up with the uh, genealogy from Noah by Shem through to Abraham and Terah and his three sons. They're not just flung together. These chapters aren't just flung together, actually. They're tied together through the genealogies. It's purposefully ordered. And today we're going to look at those first two boxes in that outline. And next week we'll look at the middle box, the big flood box, and then the last two boxes in the third week. So we turn to Genesis chapter 4. And particularly we're going to focus on the, the narrative about Cain and Abel in verses 1 to 16. Uh, basically I'm just going to work through this story and make observations as we go through the characters are introduced right at the beginning which is an appropriate thing to do at the beginning now that the man knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain saying I have produced a man with the help of the Lord next she bore his son his brother Abel now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a tiller of the ground so we start with the same characters who've just been banished from the garden, remember, Adam and Eve, and they have children, Cain and Abel. And already some of the issues from chapters 1 to 3 have been picked up here. You remember there's a curse on childbearing. It hasn't stopped it happening, though. That, that mandate for humans to increase and multiply and fill the earth does continue outside the garden. And what's more, it's clear it's with the Lord's assistance. God has not stepped out of the picture. And the two kids grow up and have particular occupations. Abel is a shepherd and Cain is a crop farmer. And again, you get an insight. Things haven't completely been cut off by the uh, expulsion from the garden because that original job of tilling the soil was given to Adam in the garden and it continues outside the garden. We know from chapter 3 that it's much harder now but it's still there. <coughs> then the scene changes to a time of family worship. Chapter verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel for his part brought of the first things of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. There's some offerings being made. We don't have much detail about the religious practice outside the garden. Uh, what the offerings were, were for or how they were supposed to be made, there's no instructions here. That there's any practice of it at all is uh, good news. That the relationship between God and humans isn't completely broken. But all we're told is that each brother gave an offering appropriate to his occupation, so Abel gives a lamb, and Cain gives some of his crop. And then the thing, something happens which propels the action in the story from here on in. God accepts Abel's but not Cain's. It all turns on that action of God. Why? Interesting to think about. And there could be a hint of why in the description of two sacrifices. You notice there's a little bit more detail about Abel's. It was the firstling, that was one of the firstborn lambs, and it was of the fat portions. How it's important for a sacrifice to be fat and uh, worth something. So there's a bit more description, whereas Cain's is just described as some fruit from the ground. It could be that Cain's holding back from God in some way in his offering. 
But the, what the text, what the account actually focuses on is Cain's reaction. Cain's reaction. You see, he's extremely angry. Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Uh, it's a strong word, very, in there, that's used there, very extremely angry. This kind of anger that becomes uncontrollable. And his countenance fell. I don't think it means he just became depressed. It's a kind of a, it's a metaphoric, physical way of deci- uh, describing his whole demeanour. You imagine he's sort of shoulders scratch up his face, scratches up with his eyes, and slits of smoke coming out of his ears. If it was a cartoon, anyway. His countenance fell. He became very angry. This is, he's consumed by this. Then the Lord speaks to him about this anger and asks him a question, which I'm sure the Lord knows the answer to, but he asks, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Why are you angry, says the Lord? We've been told quite clearly before his sacrifice wasn't accepted. But then the Lord warns Cain about his anger and lays out before him two possible options from, uh, for dealing with it. I don't know whether you've felt angry lately. It's a bit of an involuntary reaction, anger. Something happens and you feel something. It's an emotion that you feel in reaction to things. And I wonder if you've ever found yourself feeling angry and then realising, stopping yourself and realising, I've got a choice about what to do next. You sort of consciously think, it all happens very quickly. What am I, how, what am I going to do about this? This is how I feel. What am I going to do? And here, the voicing of the options by the Lord provides a kind of a test for Cain. What will you choose? Are you going to do well? Will you do well? I, I presume that's that well means not taking the next step that seems to happen in the account it is taking a step of turning into jealousy and hate against his brother the alternative is it's, it's far more sinister in, that is not doing well that is becoming jealous and hateful that opens Cain up to some really difficult stuff if he does Cain will open himself up to be mastered by sin is the way the account puts it. Sin is pictured, you might have heard, as a wild animal. You got the picture? A wild animal lurking at the door, just waiting to devour Cain. It wants to master you, says God. Anyway, I think this is a development in the idea of sin. The sin of Adam and Eve was a very personal rejection of God. That's the core idea of sin. They made decisions to assert their independence from God. They distrusted him. They disobeyed him. They're they're the heart ideas of sin. And here it's certainly that. Certainly that Cain has a decision to make. Is he going to do well or not? Will he trust God's word or not? But his sin has an added dimension. The way it's put in the text, it's it's like a some kind of power at work seeking to master Cain outside the outside of Eden. The power that seeks to master people. In a way, the first sin, if you like, unleashed a thing into the world 
a power into the world which threatens the ability to decide to do good. Sin becomes a bigger thing as well as a personal thing against God. But Cain does not do well. It's told very quickly and tersely what Cain does, where it's very clear what he chooses. He chooses not to do well and loses that battle with sin. Because, in verse 8, it says, Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. An awful, an awful thing has just happened and it's told really quickly. A brother has thought about it, planned it, it's premeditated murder of his brother. Nothing less. It's a dreadful thing. What started being a bit missed that God has kind of morphed into jealousy and finally expressed itself in murder. Then the scene changes. You with me in this narrative, following through as it's told. Scene changes to after the murder, and God has some more questions of Cain. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to its strength, and you will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. It's like a lawsuit, like a a courtroom scene. And actually the account follows a very similar pattern to God talking to Adam and Eve after their first sin. Lots of similarities. So God asks, where is your brother? Assuming, I assume God knew the answer. Uh, but Cain stupidly replies with a bald-faced lie, as if he could pull the wool over God's, God, the Creator of the world's eyes. Says, uh, "I don't know. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper?" So he almost shrugs it off. Uh, weak as water, self-justification. I don't have any duty towards my younger brother. He claims. Uh, he does. Certainly, at the very least, not to murder him, you would think. God then asks another question. What have you done? And straight away, God declares the guilt of Cain. He knows exactly what he's done. Because Abel's blood cries out from the ground, says God. It's like there's a cry for justice and for vengeance. God has heard that, and punishment is pronounced and again is pronounced in the form of another curse which comes up out of the ground as it were which came on, onto which Cain spilled his brother's blood it's kind of an appropriateness to it you spilled the blood there that's where the curse is coming from and the curse is that that ground will no longer yield any fruit for Cain remember he's a farmer so there's a curse on the ground already that it's going to be by hard, sweaty work that you'll actually cultivate the ground. This says, for this particular person, all the work in the world won't bring fruit. This is a particular, personalised, focused curse. He can no longer carry out his job of farming, so he will become a wanderer and a fugitive. And he realises the enormity of that. For us city slickers, we, we might capture that. I think if you're on the land, 
been on the land all your life and suddenly you can't be there anymore it's a huge thing but it's not so much that that Cain's worried about he actually makes an appeal and then and God responds to it verses 13 to 16 Cain said to the Lord my punishment is greater than I can bear today you have driven away from the soil driven me away from the soil and I shall be hidden from your face I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and anyone who meets me may kill me and the Lord said to him not so whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance and the Lord will put a, and the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him will kill him then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nob east of Eden do you hear the appeal? It's an appeal. He's not claiming innocence anymore. It's not, I don't know, I don't have responsibility. It's a plea for mercy. Not only will he lose his job and wander, not only will he be away from the presence of the Creator, but he knows he will be a fugitive in the sense that someone will try and kill him, probably to avenge Abel's death. He's afraid of getting killed for what he's done. It's an interesting, it's an interesting note there, because Cain's fear assumes that there's a, there are other people out there. Remember, Cain is son of Adam and Eve. Um, it's an intriguing little thing that Cain's worried about all these other people out there who may try to kill him. Who are they? It could be that Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve had other kids before Cain. It could also be a window through to a wider world of people and settlement that's not focused on by the story. But God hears the plea and marks Cain in some way that makes it clear that he's not to be killed without dire consequences. Kind of, there's a PhD thesis in the mark on Cain and there have been a number. What, what is the mark? What is that? Like a, like a Harry Potter lightning mark on his fire? Or, there's all sorts of theories. All you know from the account is that people who see Cain know that he's somehow protected by God, that you have God to answer to if you touch this guy. And God ends up even further away from the garden than his parents. His parents were just shut out with a gate in the eastern side of the garden. Cain, he goes east of, away, east of Eden, further away to the land of God and settles there. It's a kind of a sad story. Uh, and you've got to say that the first generation after Adam and Eve is certainly not immune from their sin. See, that initial declaration of independence from God and the effects of it in their lives had definitely passed on to their kids, to their children. And so, They've not only passed on, it gets worse. We now have premeditated murder in the family. There's now someone who tried to cultivate the earth with no result and no fruit. <coughs> you could ask, what about Cain's kids? What about the next one? Maybe Cain was just a bad egg. You know, maybe he was a one-off. 17, verses 17 to 14, talk about the family tree of Cain's kids and I'm afraid it gets no better. Uh, I guess it's kind of good that an exiled murderer has kids and there's a family line continued. Uh, there is a continuation of this filling of the earth that that, that that family tree represents. 
Aaron does it really dark side to the family and it ends in the seventh generation with another murderer, Lamech. Not just another murderer but a boastful one in verses 23 and 24. He sings a little song to his wife about how he's murdered somebody. Sin has well and truly devoured his family. Seven generations and nothing's changed. It ends with murder. And in the, in the account, that family, it's like that family is dismissed at that point. Cain's uh, descendants proved to be, as it were, a dead end for the continuation of the story in Genesis. Uh, it's emphasised in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 5. Have a look at those. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel, because Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to invoke the name of the Lord. They have Adam and Eve, it almost goes back to before 4 verse 1. It's like chapter 4 wasn't there. Adam uh, knows his wife again. They have another son, and it's quite explicitly to take the place of Abel. Cain's line, that's not where it's at, but there's a replacement for Abel. Let's try that line, see what that's like. A new family line is set in place, and that's picked up in chapter 5 and unfolded with a genealogy. Chapter 5 is mostly uh, a genealogy. What, why do we have genealogies? We're just pausing for a minute. Uh, we've seen it helps with the structure. Uh, genealogies are a good way to cover long periods of time in the story. So chapter 5 actually spans a thousand years or more, quite quickly. Uh, this particular one in chapter 5 focuses on a particular family line from Adam through to Noah and his sons by a set. It takes, it's a bit, we're taking the story from creation to the flood, which we'll look at next week. It introduces the next main character in the story, Noah. It's also a great way to tell you things about family, isn't it? A genealogy. I don't know if you've had your family tree done recently. Apparently it's all the rage to do. I, uh, in the spirit of that, I recently sat down with my mum and dad separately to talk about their families. So I just didn't know. I heard all these vague aunts and uncles' names and stuff, but I, I had never put it together before. That was just fascinating. It was a fascinating couple of hours with each of them. Uh, for, say, from my mum's side, the four bears came to Australia on one of the supply ships in the first fleet. There's no concrete blood on this guy, I think. Where people bodied sailors, I found it. And lots of skeletons in the cupboard. Yeah, there's, there's uh, some really sad stories in mum's family. There's alcoholism and gambling that come quite close to mum and her experience in life that I didn't know about. One interesting one was mum was the first one to do tertiary education in her side of the family. First one, her parents were both members of big families. There's just loads, seems like hundreds of cousins. I get them all mixed up. She's the first one in that lot to do tertiary education. And uh, it taught me a lot about my mum because she's never forgotten that. She's never taken that for granted. So 50 years later, four degrees later, she's still studying 
she's got a thirst for knowledge I've never come across in anybody else. It's to do with her family. She loves it. She's never taken it for granted. They tell you stuff about people and families, genealogies. Now let's look at this one and look at a number of things. What's it say about this family? One to two, it's like a new star. It's presented as a new star in creation. This is the list of the descendants of Adam. When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them humankind when they were created. <coughs> refers back to the original creation of humankind. Saying, it's like introducing this line, saying this is the continuation of, of God's purposes for humanity. God made these creatures. What's about to happen is evidence of his love for them, his ownership of them, the goodness with which he created them. He's committed to this humanity that he's made. That's what that introduction says about what's to follow. And it suggests that in this family part of, is part of God's ongoing provision uh, for his world and perhaps his intention to do something about what's wrong with it. And there's a pattern It's alright, we're not going to go through every generation, there's ten generations, but there is a pattern to each one that's worth noting. So for Seth, when Seth had lived 105 years, I'm in verse 6, sorry. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. Seth lived after the birth of Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, that's an addition of the other two numbers, it works, believe me, and he died. There's a pattern. They live a certain number of years, become the father of somebody. After they've lived another certain number of years, they have other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of so and so were x plus y number of years, and he died. What's it tell us about the family? That pattern repeated ten times. It tells us that they lived for a long time by our standards. One of the things you notice is the big numbers. Did you notice that? We're talking. Hang on. I've got to do this. We're talking 800 years, 900 years. Um, it's, it's a long time. It seems outrageous to us. Uh, actually, for the people who were originally reading that, this would have been quite different to what they might have expected from the nations around them. There's some lists in this like this of ages of great kings, for instance, that are for, they live for thousands of years. Eight or nine hundred is actually quite restrained in the world of lists of people and how long they lived in, in antiquity for the time. They actually are probably a witness to shorter life, not longevity of life. And it's confirmed by the relentless refrain. We're just waiting for that, aren't you? For the relentless refrain, and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died, and he died. Ten times, and he died. It's deliberately there because there's another genealogy that carried this on later where they don't say, and he died. It's just assumed that that's what happens. There's a finality and, and you get a sense of the senselessness of death. It seems like the main contribution of these people is to bring on the next generation. They all die. And, but you notice there's a couple of breaks in the pattern that I think are instructive. 
there's a break with Enoch. You look at verse 21 to 24, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after the birth of Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him. He lives for next year, for less years, but it's not because Andy died, it's because the Lord took him. There's another reason. Because he walked with God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden before him, this was one embedded in this family tree who walked with God. Perhaps there's some hope for humanity here. The other break occurs with Lamech, who makes a comment about his son. Verse 28. Have a look at that. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he became the father of a son, and he named him Noah, saying, Out of the ground that God has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. It's a little comment about his son. There's hope. He expresses some hope for an overturning of that curse. There's really been a theme in the first four chapters. The curse on the ground. And particularly the curse on Cain, where it bears no fruit. And anticipates, it focuses in on Noah. This one's a special one. And it focuses in for what's to come. What's going to happen with Noah? Again, the announcer will come in over the credits. Will Noah be the one? Is there hope after all? Come back next week. What do we make of these two chapters? Uh, and particularly, what do they say about the big questions? Firstly, they tell us about the infectiousness of sin and its consequences. God is teaching his people in this passage about how the original sin of Adam and Eve and its consequences continue into the whole human race. See, it's a story of intensified sin and intensified consequences for that sin. Death becomes commonplace by the end of these chapters. It's just a normal feature of the passing of years. They all die. What's more, some of them die violently because of a new enmity between humans. And there's an ongoing tension in the relationship with God here of disobedience and distrust. It's an old story, but it's actually not that new to us. Uh, we, we observe the same phenomena in our world now. Murder in Mumbai, murder in Baghdad, murder in Sydney. It's not just out there, is it? It's not just a nice story that was true back then. It's quite close to us, in fact. Our own broken relationships and enmity. Our own grief at the loss of loved ones our own impending, inevitable death. This story is quite close to us. What's wrong with the world? This passage says sin. Sin which has infected everything and everyone. And we and every human since Adam and Eve have caught up in it. Continuing to assert independence from God. I want to run my life my own life. I want to live authentically. I want to be true to myself. I don't want, I don't want my freedom to be curtailed by this belief in a creator God. The passage says that's what's wrong with the world. That kind of attitude. There's a sin virus in the human heart that we all readily, willingly succumb to. 
there, also, there are all sorts of problems out there we can do something about. Don't get me wrong. But this passage is saying the core problem, the core issue, is sin. As well as its clear consequence or curse, if you like. Death. They go hand in hand. Sin and death sums it up. What is wrong with the world? A Christian writer, many thousands of years later, the Apostle Paul wrote, probably reflecting in part on this story, he said, all die in Adam. All die in Adam. It's a dark story. And it's mainly dark. But we also notice how God is still a player in it. Did did you you notice that? He's the one who brings justice for Abel and punishes Cain. He doesn't just stand by, he calls Cain to account and punishes him for that act. He allows and actively enables an ongoing filling of his world. He doesn't give up on it. He initiates a new start for humanity in the family tree, chapter 5. A new start based on his commitment and love for his creation and his creatures. We learn here of a just, patient God who remains committed to his creation even while sin and death spread. That's the picture of this this account. And that remains God's basic stance for the rest of the Bible. It's interesting, this genealogy started here. It's completed many thousands of years later, many pages later in the Bible. In Luke chapter 3, one of the accounts of Jesus' life, as it begins, as a way of introducing Jesus, the same names in our genealogy in chapter 5 are picked up as the early names in the genealogy of Jesus. He completes that family line started in Genesis 5. Is there one who can conquer sin and overturn the curse of death in this family line? Luke saying, yeah, Jesus Christ. How he does it is a brilliant story for other times and further investigation. But for now, this side of Christ, we know that the family tree initiated by God way back there with hints of hope for the world finds its completion and fulfilment in Jesus Christ. From this account, I I think we need to feel the heaviness of the account, the seriousness of what is wrong with the world, and not pretend that there are ways of fixing it that don't somehow deal with sin and death. We need to feel the heaviness of it. We need even more, though, to look to the one that this account anticipates, Jesus Christ. Only quite half of the Apostle Paul we brought. The other half says, For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for insight into the world. We pray that you would uh, help us to understand the world as you do. We pray that you would help us to be people who trust you and your Son. Father, thank you for your gracious commitment to your creation and the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.